As we come now to God's Word, would you turn, please, to the book of Philippians in chapter 3. That's Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. And as always, before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord Almighty, we ask that you would strengthen us now. Would you help us really to listen with ears of faith and hearts of belief? And Lord, as we hear your word, would you encourage us to endure by faith? And guide us by your spirit now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the book of Philippians in chapter 3. I'll start in verse 12 and read just a, a few verses here. This is Philippians 3, beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is God's word. So this is just a few short verses here. Now as Paul uh, continues his writing to the Philippians, he has shifted in this section into an extended metaphor He's comparing his life to a race, to the Hannibal Cannibal, I guess. Uh, and this is not a sprint, as I don't think the Hannibal Cannibal is. I did not do it, but I didn't see too many sprinting. This is closer to a marathon. It's a whole life. We know this. And this is a helpful way, I think, to view our lives as Christians as a marathon, as a race. Not only, but because we know life is often hard and long, but because our lives go somewhere. They actually have purpose. So if you're running a race with little kids, the ones that are old enough to run around but just to run around and you want to run a race and you say, oh, let's run to that tree and there's a whole bunch of kids and you say, ready, set, go. And they just kind of take off in every which direction. Maybe one or two is actually heading toward where they're supposed to go. But generally it's just, uh, just running. That's not what we're looking at here, as cute as that is. Here there's a goal in mind. Here there's a a red tape across the finish line put there by God. 
And this is not our only purpose, of course, as Christians, just to get to the finish line. We have to live our lives, too. But this is a big part of our purpose as Christian followers of Jesus. Not only to live, but to finish well. So as Paul frames his life this way in the race metaphor, um, he uses terms that talk about things that are behind him in the race and things that are in front of him in the race. So I, I think it's helpful for us to see those things and to divide, to divide them out that way. So first, let's look at the things that he described that are behind him, things that are past. Look in the first verse, verse 12. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, there's a few elements in that sentence that are in the future. We'll look at those in the moment. But at the very end, he says, Christ has made me his own. That's an event that has happened in the past. And this verb that's to make me his own, there's a number of ways we can translate that in Greek, if you'll allow me to get a little word nerdy here. The King James Version says, Christ has apprehended me. Which makes it sound like I robbed a bank or something. Uh, the, the New Living Translation says that Christ possessed me. Which sounds a little Halloween-y, I guess, for me. I'm not sure that I'm a big fan of that word necessarily. Uh, others translate this word, Christ embraced me. Which is maybe a little too sentimental than what Paul's getting at here. My translation, the ESV, says Christ has made me his own. But I, I'm a little partial to the way the NIV says it. It says Christ took hold of me. It's more than just an embrace. That's too temporary. This is a little more permanent than a hug. Christ has taken hold of me, Paul says. And forms of that word are repeated in this verse, verse 12. He says it a number of times, so we could word it this way. Not that I have already taken hold of this, or am already perfect, but I press on to take hold of it because Christ has taken hold of me. You'll notice in that that he says anything that I am doing is based on what Jesus has already done in me. Christ has already taken hold of me. This is an event that has already happened in the past. Now bound up in this, Jesus taking hold of me is several things. One is what we call regeneration. There's a number of words for this in the Bible. To be born again, sometimes it's called. Or to have a changed heart that the heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. So to be regenerated is part of Christ taking hold of me. Also part of this is our justification. There's a technical Christian word. And to be justified is to be counted righteous. Once for all time. That's an event that has happened in the past in the life of a Christian. But mainly, I think, when he's talking about Christ taking hold of me, he's talking about what he would, in other uh, books, talk about as adoption. 
We know that Christians are not by nature born into God's family. We're by nature born into sin. But we are brought into God's family through Christ. We call this adoption. Uh, some friends of ours just recently adopted an adult child, an uh, adult child, a young person who's now technically an adult. Uh, it's been a very long process to get to that point, which is why he's now a, a little bit older. And they sent a postcard of, of the picture of all of them. And I saw it, of course, on Facebook. And the family is all standing there, and, and the one who is adopted is just, I mean, grinning ear to ear because he knows what happened here. That he'd been brought from one family that's difficult and adopted into a new family which knows Jesus. This is really life-changing. And we know there's an aspect of parenting now that's ongoing. Parenting is a lifelong experience. However, the fact of being part of that family is in the past. He has been adopted. Paul gets at this in Romans chapter 8. Turn there in your Bible if you're following with me and then stick your finger in it because we'll bounce back and forth between Romans 8 and Philippians 3. But Paul gets at this idea of adoption in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse... Yeah, we'll start in verse 14. Paul says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You'll notice here in the beginning of this section, he says, not everyone is God's child. You'll hear that sometimes culturally. Oh, we're all God's children, but that's not true according to the scripture. He says in this first verse, where is it? Verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. So these ones who are led by the Spirit, these are now children of God. These are ones who have been adopted into God's family. And so they are now and always will be God's children. That will never change. This is a source of security for the Christian. A source of comfort for the Christian. A source of Rest for the Christian that whatever comes in the race that's set before us, you will always be God's child, one whom Christ has taken hold of. So hold on to that. 
now. That's one of the things that's in Paul's past. He says, I've been taken hold of Christ. Christ has made me his own. But also in Philippians, as he goes on, he says that he's forgetting what lies behind. And the image here as he's running the race is, if you've ever seen the YouTube videos of those guys that are close to the end and they do the turn around to kind of check and see who's close, or even more extreme guys that are, this, you know, I don't see videos of this, but turn around and run backwards. There's a kind of insanity in that. Why would you run that way, he says. Uh, so I'm going to just forget uh, what is behind me. So he's not forgetting the fact that Christ has taken hold of him. He actually wants to hold on to that in his past. So what is it that he's forgetting? We talked about this last week, so I won't go into it too much. But in the verses before, there's this big list in verses 5 through 7 of all these things in his life, that he was a Hebrew, a Pharisee, righteous under the law, circumcised, these things that he calls the confidence of his flesh. He now considers those things rubbish, and he says, I need to forget them. I need to just run past them and leave them behind me because those things got me off track. I started to run the race in the weeds and headed toward a pit but now Christ has made me his own. And he's put me back on track by his righteousness, and now I, I want to focus on him and forget about the whole deadly direction I used to be headed in. Because if I focus on the things that were behind me, it will only weigh me down with guilt and shame. There's something to be learned here about a holy response to sin. We know that when we sin, there are often consequences of that, things that we have to face and deal with and wrestle with. And we know that when we sin, we, we're called to confess it and to restore what we can if we've stolen something that needs to be given back. If we've hurt someone, we need to do what we can to heal that. However, we also know that the eternal consequence of sin, the death and wrath of sin, was already paid by Jesus. Paid in full. He said, it's finished. There is no more debt left in that. So Paul says, why would I keep looking back at those things when they have no bearing on me anymore? Why do I allow myself to let sin trail behind me? I want to cut it loose. To forget what is behind me so that I can actually run this race looking forward. Christian, you need to hear that. Forget the sin that is behind you. Now, those are some of the things that Paul talks about in the history of his race. He also talks about a number of things that are before him. He says, forgetting what is behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead. So, of course, what is he looking forward to? In the first verse here, 12, he says, uh, 
Not that I've already obtained all this or am already made perfect. So in some sense, he's looking forward to this word, perfection. Now, let me be clear about some of this here. When we talk about perfection in this sense, this is very different than perfectionism. Sometimes perfectionism or uh, perfectionist, sometimes you'll hear people say, I'm a perfectionist, as if that's a badge of honor. But it is not. You would not hear people walking around bragging about how violent they are. Or to say, oh, I'm a philanderer. I like to sleep with lots of women. You would never hear, well, I suppose maybe in some context you might hear that as a bragging, right? But we shouldn't. And yet somehow we excuse perfectionism. The root of perfectionism is actually sin. The root of perfectionism is a, is a desire for control. To be able to hold the world in my hand and manage it according to how I think it ought to go. Perfectionism needs repentance, not praise. It's one of the things that should be addressed before the cross of Jesus and then forgotten as something behind us. Perfectionism here, this is not perfectionism, to be made perfect. When he talks about that, Paul really means to be made complete, to be made full, to be so transformed by the love of God that we become the very embodiment of love for God and love for our neighbor. That's what he means by being made perfect. And Paul here says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. In other words, there's a rumor going around. Some people are saying that God has already made me perfect. And I have no idea where people got that idea. He says, that's a twisting of, what I, of the doctrine. That's, that's a twisting of what I said. I know my life. I know my heart. I am still very far from this. This is still in the future for me and not something in the past. The red tape of glory, in other words, is still ahead. Now, Paul knows here that he's been justified, so his sin will not be counted against him. He knows that he's been adopted by Jesus. Those, those things are secure in his past. But he also knows that he will be glorified in the future by Jesus, that that's still ahead of him. Turn back to Romans in chapter 8. As Paul continues to unpack the idea of adoption, hear these words. Romans 8, beginning now in verse uh, 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul says here, as he's continuing to unfold what his adoption looked like, looks like, he says there's an aspect of this that is entirely secure and is entirely complete. I have been adopted into God's family. I am now a child of God. That's true of every Christian. But he also says there's an aspect of adoption that's incomplete. He says at the end of this that we wait eagerly for it. This aspect of adoption that's incomplete is our inheritance. And that's not yet here. A large part of that inheritance is the redemption, not just broadly, generally, but redemption of our bodies. That's the glory that will be revealed in us. That's what Paul had been talking about in the section before us, that by any means possible, I would obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul knows, and this is not news to any of us, that his body is wearing out. He is, or at least if he's anything like me, tired of being tired. And he knows that what lies ahead is redemption, not just of his soul or his spirit, but also of his body, that he will be made then perfect and complete. But even more than this, as tired as I am of being tired, I am more tired of my own sin. I am tired of choosing decisions that I later regret because I know that they were wrong. I am tired of wrestling with thoughts that I know are destructive and poisonous. I am tired of the battle to put my own selfishness to death. And I long for the redemption of my body that I would be made complete body, soul, and spirit. There's a good and helpful way of thinking about this. Uh, that St. Augustine gave to us, a 4th and 5th century African theologian. I know it's a little warm in here, uh, but this is very helpful for us. It was in Latin, so if, if, you're, if you're drifting because of the heat, turn your minds back on here. You're going to have to follow with the Latin. You could do it. All right, here we go. He talked about these different stages, he called them, of life. So in the garden with Adam and Eve, before there was sin, he said they were Passe non peccare. There's the Latin for you. Passe meaning possible or able. And then non peccare means not to sin. Peccare meaning to sin. 
So, in the garden with Adam and Eve before the snake and all of that mess, it was possible for them not to sin. They lived in a state of sinlessness and might have stayed that way, he said. After the fall, after the fruit was bitten and sin entered the world, now that ability was lost. So now we're in a state of non-passe, non-picare. In other words, it is not possible not to sin. In our world now, it is not possible not to sin. As pessimistic as that sounds, it's true. We are born in sin, and even our best acts are not done out of love for God with our whole heart. This, by the way, is why we need Jesus, why we need redemption and transformation. But even as a Christian, we live in some sense of this state that we're wrestling with sin. And so Augustine said the final state, which will only happen in glory after death, we are non-passe peccare, or it is not possible to sin. It's not possible to sin in that state. In glory, there will be no sin outside of hell at all. And it's not because in the hereafter we want to sin, but somehow we can't. It's that we are so transformed that we don't even want it anymore. I can't even imagine that fully. I I could try, but the concept of not even desiring my own selfishness is so foreign to me that I would become like Jesus in the sense that I would perfectly be able to say my will is to do the Father's will and to love it. I really want that kind of life, to to follow the Lord, not just because I'm supposed to, but because I love all of him and I love all that he is and does. That, says Paul, is the goal. That's the prize. That's what's on the other side of the red tape of the race, that we are so redeemed then that our redemption is complete that our love is perfected so much so that it's not even possible to sin anymore. Now, good, some say, Nathan. All right, that's in the future. Where does that leave me now? Look back at Romans one last time. Romans chapter 8. This is... A few verses later, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 29, Paul says this. For those whom he, the he there is God, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We call this section of scripture the golden chain. It's described as a chain because there's a bunch of links in it. You see, the first one is described as 
to be foreknown. There's foreknowledge here. And this is not just information that God looks down the corridor of time and sees what's already going to happen. That's not what Paul means. It's to be foreknown in a relational sense. That long before he had known particular people, which is the source of their eventual adoption. And out of this are a number of links that come in the chain. He talks about those who are foreknown are also predestined, and those who are predestined are also called in a very particular way, and those who are called are also justified. They're counted righteous in Jesus, and, and, and those same people are now, will be glorified. That there will be no power or effect of sin in them at all. Now, here's the challenge. In that golden chain, which is lovely, those that it's true at the beginning, it will also be true for them at the end. We live in the very middle of the last verse, at the end of chapter 30. Those whom he justified, which is in the past, he also glorified, which is yet to be true of us. And we live right in the middle of that having been justified, but not yet glorified. Now we know, just like Paul knows, that all of the links in this chain are entirely secure. They are unbreakable, that our adoption is certain, that Christ has taken hold of us, and the prize of glory, the upward call of Christ, is also secure, even though it's before us. And so knowing this, that Christ has secured my glory, it would be tempting then to say, ah, I'm secure in God. I'm eventually going to be glorified anyway. This fight against sin, I am perpetually tired and seem to often be losing, so, ah. And you stop the race. Put the pause button on the marathon and, and set up a grill and a lawn chair. Get a nice beach book or maybe turn on your favorite ne Netflix show or TV show and just wait until Jesus comes. That might be the temptation but that's not what we see in Paul. That's not even what we really see in any follower of Jesus. Paul says, yes, I know that what is behind me is just as secure as what is before me, that my adoption is secure, and so is my glorification. But because those things are secure, I actually dig in. I actually, he says, I actually press on. I actually strain forward toward what's ahead. I, I, I keep running the race with all I have until my muscles burn. I run until I can barely take another step, and then I take another step, and then I take another step until I even need a walker to take those steps. I run until I'm struggling even to make a coherent thought and all I can think in my head is just that Christ has made me his own. 
He says we press on. We're pushing against the sin in our own hearts. We do this, of course, only by his strength, but we're, we're praying and working for justice in the world. We're seeking knowledge of the truth of God now, not just later. We're sharing the love of Jesus with our neighbor now until he comes in glory. And we're fighting against the sin that still rages against our own hearts. Christian, he says, keep the course. This is a sign of maturity. And I, I chuckle at the line. He says, those, are, those of you who are mature will think like this. And if anybody thinks otherwise, if you get tempted to, to grow lax or discouraged, he says, uh, what is it? what's the exact line? God will reveal that to you also. God will point that out in your life. But perhaps... God is doing that right now. Perhaps God is saying, my dear son, my dear daughter, my dear child, I have made you my own. And I am the one that has set you on this race. So stand up. Take a drink from the living water and press on. I know it's not easy. I used to run cross country back in high school. And boy, I was horrible at it. Not once did I get a medal, not even a participation one. And the, the course that was in my hometown was notably, from the other towns when we all competed together, the most difficult course, the most difficult cross-country course out of all of them. And for a number of reasons. Part of it is we were on the spillway. It was the course right across from my house. And so there were lots of hills. And in one of the hills, several of the hills actually, there was no grass at all. So when the water came, it would run out these big gouges. And, and so you're trying to go up this steep hill and People would twist ankles on them. There was a section that would go through the woods, and it was very windy, and there were lots of roots, and so it was easy to trip on things. In fact, once in a, in a race, I saw a shoe. I don't know who continued on the race without their shoe, but someone did. And the most difficult part about this particular course is that the final hill was very long, and not very steep, but it, it just went uphill and uphill and uphill and uphill. And the worst part about it is that you went right next to the finish line and passed it and had to turn around and come back. And so you could see the end, which feels right there. It could just cut over and be done. And, and, and you hear all the cheering. And, and the, the hardest part for me was not the physical pain. My lungs are burning. My stomach is aching. The toughest part for me is the battle in my brain. I was losing the fight with my own mind because I know that at the end, that when I cross that red tape, what I get is Gatorade. Something that will turn my teeth and tongue red. Yay. 
maybe some others get a nice piece of metal to wear around their neck and maybe some, some uh, you know, bragging rights and, and others. But there's something about it that we're just going to end where we started from. And that felt deflating to me. Just doing all this work to get nowhere. Paul says the Christian race is very different from that. We don't just circle back on ourselves. In fact, we're not even turning back around to make things just like they were in the garden for Adam and Eve, but we are pressing on toward glory, fixing our eyes on Jesus, moving in and through the destruction of sin toward the redemption of our whole bodies so that the prize at the end would be Christ himself. So now, in the meantime, we're doing what he says in these verses 13 and 14. He says, forgetting Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know, and you know, that this is difficult for us. Would you help us to run the race that is set before us with endurance? Help us not to grow weary or faint-hearted. Would you help us to look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the race and the shame of the cross, and who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Help us to value this and to run well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.